Are you tired of the same old business advice? Welcome to the Liberated CEO Experience, the podcast that's redefining entrepreneurial success one unscripted and candid conversation at a time. Get ready to soak up unfiltered stories of triumph, failure, and everything in between from trailblazers who are rewriting the rules of the game and building thriving businesses on their own terms. So if you're ready to level up your impact, income, and joy, all while staying true to your unique vision, you're in the right place. This is the Liberated CEO Experience. Hey there, fearless entrepreneurs and freedom cravers. You've landed on yet another electrifying episode of the Liberated CEO Experience. I'm your host, Ty Goodwin, and today we're plunging headfirst into an insightful topic for trailblazing leaders, creating more impact through a brain-friendly workplace. My guest today is Bill Flynn, the CEO of Catalyst Growth Advisors. He has accomplished much failed often and learned many useful lessons from 30 years of studying the science of success. He is best described as a pragmatic Simon Sinek, an optimist and an operator. Bill embodies his core purpose, simplified servanthood, by spending each working moment to help create a compassionately productive society by enabling enlightened leaders to focus on the few things that truly matter to their teams and key stakeholders. He has worked for and advised hundreds of companies, including startups, where he has a long track record of success spanning multiple industries. Bill has been a VP of sales eight times, twice a CMO, and once a GM of a division of a $100 million IT services company before he pivoted to becoming a business growth coach in 2015. So if you're ready to supercharge your team's performance and make a bigger impact by tapping into the power of brain-friendly workspaces, then you won't want to miss this enlightening conversation. Settle in, grab your favorite brain-boosting snack, and let's dive into the world of brain-friendly workplaces with the insightful Bill Flynn right here on the Liberated CEO Experience. I am always excited when I get to talk marketing, but we're going to geek out a little today with the topic that we have. The guest that I have today, we get to talk about some topics that not a lot of people are really good at, and he's got some expertise that we're going to tap into. But Bill, welcome. We heard about your bio and the things that you've gotten to do in your past, but I want to hear from you a little bit. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I've had a couple of different arcs to my career, if you will. And I first started off doing high-tech startups here in the Boston area. I did 10 of them over about 25 or so years, and they did pretty well, either five for 10 or five for seven, depending on how you count my contribution. The first six was really good. We're really good. We were five for six. I've been through a couple IPOs seven acquisitions, done a lot of that, mostly focused on the front office things, sales, marketing, service, running those types of groups. I've never actually started any of them myself. I've always been the one that comes in and helps to scale it up. And then about seven years ago or so, I switched to being a growth coach. So now I work with clients to teach them a growth framework to help them take the guesswork out of growing their business, really focusing on some very specific areas that I think are the ones that work pretty well. And we can get into those a little bit later. So that's how I got here. Okay. So that's an interesting path because I think a lot of people who have started companies and then moved on, they end up spending time on a golf course, right? Like <laughs> not doing much of anything else anymore, but you specifically wanted to focus on like growth. So I'm curious about 
that for you? Have you always been that teacher coach kind of person throughout your history? Yeah. Many of the folks that worked with me and were in my group, nor on my team, would often jokingly refer to me as Socrates. So I ask a lot of questions. I have a coach skew towards being more of a coach than an authority or a boss or that type of thing. I generally believe that the team around me are a bunch of really smart people and me telling them what to do is just really limiting. So I certainly participate in the conversation and I would set the direction and the framework, but then we'd work together and really rely on them to help me grow the business or grow that team or whatever it might be. So yes, I believe, I don't think I started off that way when I was younger. I was much more dictatorial and tell them what to do. And as I went on, I didn't really like that style. That was what I was taught. And so I've sort of gradually become this more Socratic approach. So do you think that was influenced by like the neuroscience or the science side of what you started learning about how people operate and how people think? Do you think that impacted how you started to show up as a leader in those businesses? It probably influenced that. I don't know that I can tie it directly to that. I first started really looking into neuroscience as a salesperson because when I was taught how to sell, it gave me the standard cliched stuff is you need to create rapport with your client and you need to know your product really well and you need to understand your competition and all that kind of stuff. And so I did all that and I thought I was pretty good at that. People generally liked me. I knew my product. I studied it well and used it, but I wasn't that great at selling. I didn't feel like I was a very good salesperson and well, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and why was that? And so I said, what's the essence of selling? And what I came to conclude was that selling is helping someone else make a decision mm-hmm. and giving them the information, et cetera, to help them do that. And so then I said, so it's a decision. So how do people make decisions? And then that's when I started looking into it. And our decisions are made basically between our ears, right? Supposedly we make 32,000 or so decisions a day, brushing teeth and what I'm wearing and all this kind of stuff. But those critical decisions, buying something are also in part of that process. And when I studied that, I learned that they have this thing called an fMRI, which is basically showing where the blood flows in your brain when certain functions of your brain happen. And when you make a decision, the limbic areas of your brain light up first. And often they light up before you're consciously aware of a decision that you're making. So we make decisions primarily on emotion. And they're often out of our conscious awareness. So I learned that if I could tie into that, right, and have them be more emotional in the process, not necessarily emotional in terms of dramatic or whatever, but connecting with folks. So I worked on that and I changed the way I do things and really sort of worked on that as the primary thing that I did. And then I became the number one or number two sales rep everywhere I went. It was like a superpower. I'm sure understanding the essence of studying neuroscience for me is that I began to understand that we are all kind of crazy. We're impulsive, we're irrational, and we're highly emotional beings. And often, and as I said before, when people do things and say things, sometimes they do it out of emotion and they don't even realize they're doing it. We often come to a decision and then make up the reasons after the fact. And then we're stalwart in our defending of that decision, which isn't necessarily a logical and rational approach to something. It was something that came out of emotion. But because I did that, I believe when I'm not hungry or tired or angry or whatever, I'm much more compassionate, right? I'm more compassionate with myself and with others because I realize that a lot of what goes on in our lives is in our own life and our decisions is out of our conscious awareness. We're not really aware of what we're doing. So that's helped me. And I think that helps you to be a better coach is perspective taking, right? Is you're able to say, you know, well, let's dig in a little bit more. And where's that coming from? And slow down the other person's thinking, slow down your own thinking. 
And that's what I think a lot of coaching is. Coaching is a lot of listening and having empathy and compassion and saying, you know, so asking questions about folks and helping them work through that. I'm so glad you clarified that because a lot of people get coaching consulting mixed up. Um, A lot of people call themselves coaches and what they're really doing is consulting. They're telling people the answer. And here's what, you know, based on my expertise, and in some cases, it's not really their expertise, but they're going to tell you anyway. And they're telling people what to do. And they say, I'm a coach. And that's never been what coaching is. I was at an event a while ago and we were all at this table doing these activities. And I started asking a woman some questions. She was like, wow, those are really good questions. I said, I can't help it. It's the coach in me. Because as coaches, we never presume that we've got the answer. It's about asking people, listening, and then like, I'm aware of those inconsistencies or I'm aware where there's an oversight or where there's a disconnect and how can I help you get closer to that? So I'm glad that you brought that up. I'm curious about this from a sales side, because you mentioned about it being like emotional decisions and emotional choices. And it's funny, whenever I take road trips, I have an audio book and my latest audio book was The Power of Your Subconscious Mind. So I'm listening to that and I'm hearing you talk about it. And I'm wondering for those people that really struggle with sales, how much of it is their own emotions that are getting in the way? There are lots of reasons that people struggle with anything. There are often many more ways to screw something up than there is to get it right. That may be one of the ways is that I think one of the things that I hear from folks, because I get, since I was a head of sales many, and I've been a salesperson many times, I get questions all the time. And my suggestion to them is to stop making it about yourself. Because that's the fear. I feel uncomfortable asking for this for me. And it's, it's not really about you. Selling is about the other person. Think about it in the ways that you're helping them. Are you helping them? And to make sure your job as a good salesperson isn't to assume that you can help them, is to see if you can. To see if whatever they're struggling with, whatever problems that they're trying to, or progress they're trying to make in their lives, is something that you can assist them with. And if you can, it has nothing to do with you. I think that's a very selfish way of looking at it. And if you can take yourself out of the equation, then you're probably a better salesperson. So I think that would be the emotion that folks would deal with the most, right? Is stop, get over yourself. You're here to help someone. So if you make it about you, then yes, they'll see that. And then their guard will be up because we don't like that. We don't like people imposing themselves on us or not really making it clear that it's about them. So one of the things that I changed when I studied decision-making is I changed how I started a sales meeting. Mm. And what I did is in appropriate ways and timing, but very often I would do two things. One is I would try to figure out who was the bully with the juice in the room. Mm. It isn't necessarily decision-maker or the home of the biggest title. You have to figure that out. But I would ask him or her, and then the other ones in the group, I would say, so Let's say this is going to be a 45 minute to an hour meeting. Please describe for me what would be the ideal outcome for you? What would be a really good use of your time in this meeting? And then I would make sure that I got it from the bully with the juice, but I would also make sure that everyone got to participate. And I'd write down everything they said. And then I would tailor what I did next to that. And I would basically go through and make sure that I hit all of their points. If they didn't say something that I thought would be important for them. They just didn't mention it. And other people like them did want it. I would add that at the end. And then when I did that, I would go through my list and I'd say, okay, these are the things that you thought would be good meeting. And I said, you wanted to hear about this and hear about this. And then I would check them off because basically I was saying that you're important and I am here to give you what you need or what you think you need mm-hmm. to help you make a decision. And that immediately makes them feel some sort of affection towards me. 
Mm. And again, I'm triggering that emotion, right? And if it is true, if they like you, they're more likely to buy from you. Mm -hmm. But they don't like you because you're funny or interesting or charming or whatever. They like you more because you care about them. You acknowledge their needs and you're trying to help them with their problem as opposed to trying to get, you know, a lot of people say, act as if you have my money in your wallet. They act that way. We know that as human beings, we know that relatively quickly and intuitively. If you can take that approach, I think you'll be better off. Make it about them Mm -hmm. and those emotions that are fighting with about being an imposter or not knowing the answer or whatever, not being worthy will go away. Yeah. Yeah. We teach that a lot. You know, I say that the reality of sales, I was just saying this, I did a whole thing around the six ways to get better at sales. And I was sharing that it's about you solving the problem that somebody has. It's not about sales has never been about, we're going to make somebody pay for something they don't really want. They have a problem. You have a solution. Everybody should win in this event. Now, winning doesn't always mean you get the sale. Sometimes you're going to point them in another direction, but the whole goal of this is for it to be a win-win for everybody. And when I think focus on that. And the other thing is you get to be their hero. You're the one that's going to come in and save the day because they've got this huge problem they want solved and you can fix it. So for me, it's always about the perspective of how we go into those conversations. Now you've coined, well, I don't know if you've coined this term, but as I was doing some little background reading, I wanted to ask you about this whole neuroleadership. Yeah, I did not coin that term. That's David Rock. Uh There's been the neuroleader. And I don't know if he coined it either, but there's a neuroleadership institute. It's in New York City and it's been around for 20 years, I think, give or take. Yeah. Neuroleadership is basically how do you create a brain friendly company? Understanding that the brain is really driving a lot of what's going on in the business. And if you don't understand at least the fundamentals of how the brain works, it is not designed to do the things that we're asking it to do in right now. It is the last major upgrade in our brains is somewhere between 10 and 50,000 years ago. And we were on the savanna. We were in tribes of 150 or so, and it was about surviving. And the job of your brain was to predict the near future so you didn't die. And what we've learned is that the brain doesn't really distinguish well between a physical threat and a social threat. Mm. Now, we have far fewer physical threats in our lives. We're not out trying to not get stomped on by a woolly mammoth or eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or whatever, or fall off a cliff or whatever those things are that we were trying to avoid when we're walking 12 miles a day in groups of 15, 20, 30 to get food and to stay warm and to be safe and all that kind of stuff. So if you don't understand that, then you're going to act as if the brain is doing something else and it's going to not work, not going to go well for you. I do this example with folks all the time, and you may have done this yourself or had this done to you. And is, is, so let's say that you and I are in a meeting and you're my boss and I'm running the meeting. You're just sort of observing the meeting and the meeting ends and it wraps up and it was okay. It wasn't a great meeting. It wasn't bad or whatever. And you want to help me, right? You talked about, you want to coach me. What often happens, maybe less so now, but certainly more in the past is what you might do is get up and as you're leaving, you'll tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Bill, can you follow me back to my office? I want to give you some feedback on the meeting. And so what happens to me? Yeah, your shoulders get up, right? You get tense. Yeah, yeah. I'm nervous, right? What happened? To, what did mm-hmm. I do wrong? And then there's other people in the room like, oh, what do other people think about me? And I'm following you back to your office, which is a status symbol. Mm-hmm. And you sit behind your desk, which is another status symbol, which also protects you. And I'm sitting in a chair and I'm wide open. So my brain is now going run. And that's why your heart starts pumping. You'll make start sweating. There's all these things going on in your body because it doesn't know that you're not potentially about to die, but it's acting as if you are. Your hands might get cold. Your blood is going to your legs and your butt so you can leave. And so 
What you could have done as an alternate way to hopefully mitigate or eliminate that is you could have waited till everyone left, sat down next to me and said, hey, Bill, how do you think that meeting went? And if I'm not delusional, I'm going to say, yeah, it went okay, whatever. And I said, you think so too. So let's do this. Why don't you put a lunch or a coffee on my calendar and we'll get together before the next meeting and come to that meeting with two or three things that you thought went really well that we should do more of or even improve on those. One or two things you didn't think went well. I'll do the same thing. And then you and I are going to work together every week until we agree that this is the best possible version of this meeting that we could have. Right now, there's no status. There's no uncertainty that you're giving me autonomy. That seems like a fair thing that you're doing. So there are all these things that you triggered in me before, which aren't triggered or certainly are triggered at a much lower level. So that's what I mean about being brain friendly. And you mentioned something about coaching. There's a great joke, which is the five most feared words in business are, can I give you some feedback? <laughs> right. Or now you could say, can I give you some coaching? <laughs> oh my God. And, um, yeah. The best definition I've heard of feedback is feedback is you talking about you in the presence of me. <laughs> Because oh, you yeah. are not an expert on that person. Now, and I will qualify it. If it's a skill of some kind and you have expertise and a skill, then yes, you should give feedback, right? Now you should say, try it this way, use your hand this way or do this or whatever. But most of our feedback is not about skill. It's about behavior. Hmm. And we are not experts on someone else. We are just not. And we act as if we are. So we give advice and advice is feedback in better clothes. Right. So we have to be careful. Coaching to me is you already believe that person can be great. And your job is to figure out what their brilliance is yeah, and put them in a position to use that as often as they can during the day. Yeah. It's co-creating. I think that's the other piece for me. It's never about the status. It's never about I'm the boss or I'm the expert. So I'm going to tell you what to do, or I show you how to do it better. It becomes something where we're co-creating this together. That The best boss that I had, I worked with her at Barnes and Noble and she went on to Gore Industries and she works with like top talent there. That's what she does, talent management and that kind of stuff. And she was very clear in how she communicated and making me feel safe enough and also making me feel supported. And one of the things I loved and I learned from her, she would say, I want to help you protect your time. And I love that phrase because everybody wants to schedule meetings. She would say that often. But then she also had this thing of, you tell me, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to tell you, we're going to have a conversation and you <clears throat> tell me where you need my support. And that was a dynamic that I had not had. And this was maybe, okay, this was about maybe 25 years ago. Now, I think there's more of that. But back then, that was unheard of in a lot of Fortune 500 companies. But she had that approach where there was a lot of autonomy, a lot of trust, but there was also a lot of support. And I never forgot that from her. So. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think you said something which always strikes me is the language we use is important as well. And what I've learned is that in a very rare instance, other than that one or two really rare instances, one in a hundred thousand, is no one can make you feel anything. Is that, like you said, she made me feel supported. I would say that she spoke with you and worked with you in a way that you felt supported. Yeah, I like that. You didn't actually make, you decided whether you were supported or not. She right. didn't make you do it. And mm -hmm. I think that also takes the burden away from people, right? As well, is it's not your job to make someone feel something. Mm. Your job is to get it so they do feel that thing. And by the way, it's also a responsibility of the person to know that my feelings are my own. Yeah. And I can choose to feel any way I want. If someone says something to me one way, I can decide to feel something. If someone says someone else says it, 
I may feel something else. Like for instance, the rain doesn't make you angry because if you're a farmer and it hasn't rained in a while, you're probably pretty happy. The rain doesn't have any power over you. You decide how to feel about that thing. And I think if we realize that as coaches and coachees, that makes the dynamic a lot better. You can create that environment of safety because you believe they can already be great. And your job is just to help them find that. Yeah, I think that's really important. I hear a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, especially if they've come from a bad corporate experience. Okay, this is all colored by my corporate because I had a couple of great bosses and all the rest of them were just not so great. Um, But I think a lot of us come out into being entrepreneurs because we don't ever want to be in that situation again. I know I've said in my company, I don't ever want to make people feel like I felt in those situations. But then the question comes, where do we get, where do we learn that from? Where do we get those skills from? Because if you haven't seen it in a corporate environment, we do what we know, even if we know it was bad, we'll do that same thing over again. So how can people develop those skills to create that brain friendly workspace when they're starting to build their team for other people? So I'm a big Amy Edmondson fan, and I share with people that if you want to be a great leader and you want the best out of your team, you need to model the behavior that you want from your team. And as you said earlier, you need that safety. And she's coined a term called psychological safety. And what that means to me is that you need to get very comfortable as a leader saying, I don't know, I'm sorry, and I need help. Hmm. Because when you do that, you let them know that it's okay to be a human being. We are flawed. As I said, we are highly emotional, irrational, and impulsive beings. And until you model that behavior, you're not going to get it from them. And it's even sometimes for good reasons. They don't want to let you down. They don't want to upset you. So they won't give you information that you need to help figure out a problem. And I used to have a boss a long time ago, and I know he learned this from his corporate days. And it didn't sit right with me when it was happening, but I didn't have any other option. He would say, you can't come to me with a problem without a solution. And it wasn't until years later, I'm like, that didn't make sense. And, you know, as I learned it, like, of course it doesn't make sense. Because, well, that means if I don't have a solution, I won't tell you there's a problem. It doesn't mean the problem went away, (laughs) right? It just means we're not talking about it. So we're just ignoring it and it's festering. So when you create that environment, you're like, yes, it would be great if you came to me and you had some ideas, but that's okay. I'd rather have you, let's surface the issue and let's work as a team to make that happen. And Alan Mulally is my favorite leader. And for those of you who don't know who Alan Mulally is, he is the former CEO of Ford, which he turned around in the middle of 2008, and is the former CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft, which he turned around in the middle of 9-11, which to me, no leader has ever done or come close to, certainly doing it twice. <laughs> and he's a really wonderful human being. And I've gotten to know Alan a little bit. And when he went in Ford, it was a very macho male-dominated culture. And he came in and said, look, we need to be a team and teams help each other. And what I want you to do is we're going to do this business process review, which should take about two hours for us to go through all the different things. It's just the key things in each of your businesses and your areas, your divisions. And we just do red, yellow, green. And he started in like October, November of 2006, I think. And he went to the first meeting and everything was green. Nobody had any problems. And then he said one or two more of those. And he stopped and said, okay, everyone. So we're going to lose $17 billion this year. That's what I was told. I said, so do you really think everything is green? That next meeting or a meeting thereafter, one of the divisions, I can't remember who it was, but they weren't producing cars. They're an automobile manufacturer and they weren't making cars. So he turned to his team and said, do you think this is what Alan means by red? 
And so he went to the next meeting and he said, we've got this issue with production. And Alan started clapping. He just started clapping. And he said, I looked around the room and everyone's there. They were like, this was the signal for the doors to burst open and for these two huge guys to grab Mark by the shoulders and rip him out of the room. And we would never see him again. <laughs> and, but it wasn't. He was saying, great. You know, and he said, yeah. and, he, and Alan said, I looked to the room and to the phone and said, who can help Mark with this problem? And mm-hmm. then someone said, oh, we had that here. I could do this. And two or three people. And then next time Mark came in, he had a few more red, greens and yellows and that problem was fixed. And eventually he said, mm-hmm. I finally saw rainbows. Right. Nice. And he said, I knew at that point we were going to make it. Yeah. And when he left in 2014, I think, not that year, but the next year, Ford became the number one car maker in the world for the first time again in 70 years. Wow. What a great story. And there's so many nuggets in that. It reminds me of something I always say that I think people are like, we're done looking for perfect and we're looking for practicing. We've had a lot of people and businesses model or give us what looks like perfect, but there's no reality to it. It's like a facade, right? We're just going to show you what we think we want you to hear and what we want you to see. And the folks that I've been hanging around with, what we're really looking for are people who are practicing, right? And that practice is what one of my other sayings is practice is what makes profit. You've got to implement something. You've got to make something happen. You've got to do something. And so that's exactly what that reminds me of. We're not trying to create this perfect image and this facade that everything is perfect, but we're going to be practicing what our values are. You say our values are growth. And then for them, that's something that they had to practice. Well, let's figure out where we're not growing and let's make it grow. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I think the pursuit of perfection is good. Mm-hmm. You, knowing you'll never get it. You know, what you want to do is you want to pursue perfection and achieve excellence. Mm, that's great. Right? That's what you're looking for, right? And yeah. if you're trying to grow a company or a person or whatever, that requires that you will never be perfect because yeah. you're always getting better, right? Which means you'll never get there. And it'll be uncomfortable, right? Growth is uncomfortable. So yeah, I agree. Never set that standard. If you set that standard, then people will start to shrink away because it's impossible to do. Yeah. Wow. So you mentioned a few names that I wrote down to take a look at. I'm noticing your bookshelf and I'm always wanting to browse people's bookshelves, but I'm curious for you, what are the top three books that you would recommend to somebody who really wants to get better with either sales or leadership? So I don't think there's any one sales book that I would recommend. There are tons of books on sales and they have all these different methods and whatever. Again, I think you have to do those fundamentals. You need to know what you're talking about and you need to understand the context of what you're in, but that's basic stuff. But if you want to be a really good salesperson, you have to be curious and compassionate. Mm. I think if you go into any situation, if you're well-informed and you know your stuff and make it, again, make it about them, you'll be a good salesperson or you'll be a great salesperson. You know, I've read so many sales books in my day and in the end, I made my own stuff. But leadership, leadership to me isn't a thing. Mm-hmm. You can't proclaim yourself a leader. You can say you're a boss. You can say you're in charge. You can say you have authority, but people choose leaders. You don't decide. And we just went through it, right? People run for office yeah. and they say, I want to be your leader. And then we vote And either they make it or they don't. There is no like set of things. I've read so many things. These are the attributes to be a leader. I'm like, no, every leader is different. Steve Jobs is different than Alan Mulally is different than Lyndon Johnson that is different than Oprah, whatever. Pick your person. They all do it in a different way and they do it the best way they can that makes sense to them. 
But there are two things that I think that you need. One is you need to be a really good leader. You need to have a vision. You need to tell people, where are we going? Mm. Because that's what they want to know, right? If they're going to follow you, they want to know, where am I following you, right? The second is you have to have courage. Because I think to be a really good leader, you have to have a courage of your vision because people are going to tell your vision is wrong or whatever, and there's better ways to do it. And you know what? They're probably right, but this is my vision. You have to have the courage to let people help you do it. Give them the autonomy and the rules and let them make mistakes and learn and grow. So there's a lot of courage, I think, in leadership. Other than that, whether you like them or not, you can decide. But there are a lot of leaders that are not humble. There are a lot of leaders that don't have integrity. It's very true. But people have decided there's something compelling about them or what they're saying or whatever they're putting out there, their vision, that people choose to follow. And we can say certain people are greater or not. And we've made a lot of those decisions lately. But in the end, it's a personal choice that someone makes to say, yeah, I choose to follow this person. That's what I think you need to do in leadership. One of the best books, I think, on leadership is Nine Lies About Work, I think, by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. And it goes through these some of these myths, right, Mm -hmm. that you know, about feedback and all these things and that we weren't really taught to be leaders and how to run a company. And it was based upon conventional wisdom and most conventional wisdom is incorrect. Mm, Yeah. I'm curious. I'm a big Marcus Buckingham fan, by the way. So I'll definitely want to check that out, but I'm curious. And it's just, this question just came up totally out of the blue. We've heard a lot recently about companies seeking more women in leadership roles. um, organizations and what your thoughts on how that's going to shape things over the next 10, 20 years. Do you have any thoughts or? So what I've learned about leadership, and now let's talk about when leaders are successful, the attributes that they need to be successful and really good leaders and great leaders. I actually think women in general, and I know I'm stereotyping, come with them as already part of who they are. It's more of a natural thing. Again, it's about compassion. It's about understanding, and it's about relationships and the social aspects of things. And especially if you're a mother, I think, because the way I think about leadership and motherhood is that let's assume you have multiple kids, et cetera. So now you have to take disparate people and personalities. Yeah. You have to get them all working together and doing things and coordinating and making sure you understand the differences between each and you're not treating everyone the same because some are shy and some are extroverted and some are this and some are that. You have to do all these things. What a great training ground to run a team of idiosyncratic, spiky people and trying to make them well-rounded. You can't make someone well-rounded. We're just not. But you can make a well-rounded team if you understand, you know, what is the team trying to accomplish? How does it contribute to this overall success of the company? What are the functional components of that? And then how do I put those people in the best positions that get the best out of them and also contribute the most to the team and to the organization? Yeah. And I think this is only one data point. But if you look at when COVID first happened, and there was some ranking of countries that sort of were handling it the best, and there were some metrics of number of people sick and dying and all that type of thing. And the top 10 countries, eight of them were run by women. I remember reading that. Yeah. Because they didn't just either try to be brave or whatever. They're like, how do we solve this problem? This is new. And Jacinda Ardern was really probably the poster child of the whole thing. And she was very humble about it. She said, let's get together. Let's figure this thing out. Let's make it easy for people to understand. And they did really well for, I think they had some setbacks, but they did extremely well relative to other countries like ours and other sort of male dominated autocratic sort of thinking approach. Mm -hmm. They didn't work. 
Yeah. We'd be better yeah. off if more women were in leadership positions. I truly believe that. And half of my clients are women or have those types of qualities. They have the compassion and social and they're not afraid to be vulnerable, that type of thing. Oh, you dropped so many good nuggets here. And I've got some great notes that I can't wait to put in our show notes here. What you were saying reminds me a lot of situational leadership. I don't know if you remember that training that was big in corporate. Again, that was, gosh, it has to be about 27 yeah. years ago. I know the phrase. I don't really know what it is, but uh, I know the but phrase. It was very much the whole idea that you can't treat people the same way yeah. and put people in buckets and you would manage them based on where they were. I really enjoy going through that kind of training at some point, but I see how we're there. It's all tied together with like emotional intelligence. Like all those things are pieces of a bigger puzzle. It feels like that yeah. would allow people to be really great at building teams. I think puzzle is an excellent word. It's not a jigsaw puzzle with an already prescribed mm. ending. It's a crossword puzzle. It is the New York Times. If you want to run a great company, it's like the New York Times Saturday puzzle, which is the hardest puzzle of the week. Nice. Knowing that if you get something wrong, it could screw up other stuff. If you get something right, it can help do other stuff. And each thing connects to the other and has multiple impacts. So it's not an easy thing to do is to understand that's what you're trying to do. And things are moving as well. So you're always, as you said, there's no perfect in this. There's just better. There's progress. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy. I love that. I'm a word person. So that makes me, yeah, me happy. Too. Um, I love it. We've got to wrap up our conversation, but I'm so glad that we got to geek out just a little bit, but we had a really, really interesting discussion about leadership with some great nuggets and notes there. And I've asked this question of all the guests because we are titled the liberated CEO. And I'm curious when you think about liberation or creating a liberated perspective for the work that you do, or even in your own business, what does that mean to you? I don't quite use that word, but I think this applies is when I work with my clients is I say, my main job is to get you the CEO to fire yourself from the day to day mm. because your job is not to run the company full time anymore. It is to get other people to run the day to day because your job is to predict the future. And really the prediction of the future is more about its creation and you can't do and think at the same time. Our wow. brain can only really focus on one thing at a time. So if you're in lots of meetings and making all the decisions and all that kind of thing, you're not giving yourself time to think. And then I often ask, and I'll ask you as well, is when you get your best ideas, when you get those insights and those flashes, what are you doing most often? I'm usually reading something. Yeah, reading or just taking a shower, going for a run. Generally, you're letting your brain rest. And that's when insights happen. Typically, it's when it's physically your brain changes. When you have an insight, when you get that flash of some connections have happened that weren't there before. And that's when it flashes to you. And it's typically loose connections that come together all of a sudden. And you can't do that if you're engaged in something else. You can't drive and do math at the same time very well. You know, we do that. We see that now. People are trying to be on their phones and drive. I can do that. When they're weaving in and out, they don't even notice they're weaving in and out. You just can't do it. Yeah. So you have to fire yourself from the day to day. The way to do that is to create the environment so other people can run your business day to day. You have to teach them things. You have to give them guidelines. You have to give them direction, et cetera. Not telling them what to do, but giving them the ability to make decisions on their own. Yeah. And that takes work and it's hard to do. So yeah. that's sort of what I mean. What I would say is when you're a liberated CEO, when you've given yourself time to do what you're supposed to do, which is predict the future of the business and create the future of the business, not run the day to day. Wow. That's really powerful because I think a lot of us, when we first decide that we want to be entrepreneurs, that is our goal, right? I want to create, right? I want to make something different. I don't get to do that in a day job, but we start off doing so much. 
yeah. how to do this, that we get detached from that. So it's almost we're coming full circle, getting back to that space where we are able to dream and to think and to create again. And it sounds just like fun all day long. Exactly. So. Exactly. Good. Thank you so much, Bill. I know you've got a book. I want you to drop the title of your book and where people can find that. If they want to connect more with you, tell them where they can find you. Sure. So my book is called Further, Faster, The Vital Few Steps to Take the Guesswork Out of Growth. It's the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule towards business. It's not everything that you could do. It's not everything I teach, but it's what I think are the key things that if you focused on these, you'd get the furthest, the fastest, that's the name. And it's on Amazon and Audible and all those places, but you also can get it for free on my website. You can download the PDF of it. And there's also links to Amazon or Audible there. You can do it either way. I get three or four bucks every time you buy it, which is great. And I also have on my site, I do a blog post twice a month. I've got about 150 of them on there. They're very more their to-dos. They're for you to do things as opposed to just read and tell you how smart I am. And also about 25 exercises that are connected to the book on there. So as you're reading the book, you can go to my website and hopefully I've written them so you can do them yourself without any need for anyone else. Or of course, you can hire me as a, an accelerator of that process. That's typically what I teach isn't unique to me. I've stolen from others who've stolen from others. This is all about Deming and Drucker and Shine and Bennis and McGregor and Collins and Porter and all these people just packaged my way. And so that's what I do. I help accelerate that process for you. Fantastic. The website is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Yes. Name is Bill Flynn for those of you who are listening and you can't read the screen. So catalystgrowthadvisors.com. And we have been having an amazing conversation with Bill Flynn. Bill, thank you. And for those of you who are listening, you already know, be brilliant, be bankable and show up like a liberated CEO in your business. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us for today's episode. Check the show notes at tygoodwin.com for links and resources. And be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you found value in this episode, please leave us a rating. Until next time, be brilliant, be bankable, and show up like a boss in your life and your business.